Anita, I am here standing in my personhood. Yes, and this is Andy, Young Nassau County. I am sitting in my room as I've been doing for the last month and a half. Yeah, you and everybody else, Andy. <laughs> we are here. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a heavy episode. Well, yeah, you know it's heavy times that we're living in right now, and we do have a, a heavy episode that we want to talk about. But we think it's really important to bring light to this issue. So we're going to present to you an interview that we did with three very special guests on the issue of criminal justice reform and mass incarceration. And one point that comes up in in the episodes is that the Bible calls for us to remember those who are in prison as if we're in prison with them. So we're doing this episode to do just that. Honestly, this issue is something that impacts all of us in one way or another. And despite having 5% of the world's population, our country has 25% of the global prison population. Since 1970, our incarcerated population has increased 700%, y'all. And there are 2.3 million Americans in prison today. Clearly, our criminal justice system is severely broken. So we sat down with lawyers and reform advocates, Lenora Easter, Wendy Jennings and Anton Robinson to better understand mass incarceration and what they are doing to make our justice system one that better ensures fairness, promotes safety, and strengthens communities. We definitely think that you can learn a lot from these episodes, so stay tuned, keep it locked. This is City Image. City Image. We are speaking to Anton Robinson, Wendy Jennings, and Lenora East. Anton advocates for criminal justice reform in New York and nationally. Before his current position, Anton was a public defender representing people with limited resources. He is currently working to reduce the use of jails in the criminal justice system here in New York. Now, Lenora is a criminal defense attorney who is licensed in Florida, New York, and the U.S. Supreme Court. She is a public defender with over 11 years of public defense experience who currently works to represent low-income people by means of holistic defense. She is a Bronx native who is passionate about representing her fellow Bronx residents. And Wendy is an attorney and represents low-income parents in New York City who are ensnared in the child welfare system. She has also written on family separations within the child welfare system. So Anton... Lenora and Wendy, thank you for joining us on City Image. Welcome. Thank you for having us. So to start us off, what is mass incarceration and what would you say are the contributing factors to mass incarceration? Well, just to put a little, uh, to give a little framing, despite the fact that the the United States makes up about 5% of the global population, um, we have about 25% of the world's uh, prison population, mm. right? So that tells us from the very beginning that we're doing uh, criminal justice. And I, and I tend to not use the words criminal justice. I use 
the criminal legal system. Mm. It tells us that the way that we're doing, uh, you know, that we're operating our criminal legal system is at the very least vastly different than the way other countries are doing it. So we have about 2.3 million people in jail and prison today, which simply outpaces the, the population growth and crime. When we, when we think about mass incarceration, it has to do with the, the amount of people that we put in jail consistently, the way that we think of our uh, carceral system, the way that we think of punishment, and a lot of those things will come up uh, during the rest of this conversation. Yeah, I think to add on to what Anton was just saying, in terms of mass incarceration, it is a term that now is in kind of the popular vernacular and is thrown around a lot. And so I think it is helpful to kind of come back to what we're talking about and the numbers that Anton gave are really helpful in terms of just understanding the scale of how backwards the United States has it. Um, the way that policing is used in the United States and the way that our country has been built on racism from the beginning and how state violence has consistently been a way that we keep control over the masses, right? And so I think just the threads of racism coming from the genocide of Native people and then also slavery, of course, and how all of those things have been intimately linked with policing and with the carceral system to where we are today is you just have to put all those things together and you can't separate them. Mm. I mean, I think that Anton and Wendy have, you know, make very, very good points. I think that when we're talking about mass incarceration, it's not that it is fairly across the board when it does come to race, you, you, we will see that predominantly Black, Brown, and Latino men and women make up the majority of the people that are currently incarcerated in our, you know, in our jails in this country. So yeah, let's go into those details. Anton, you mentioned that the United States criminal legal system, as you put it, is, is unique in how it operates. What would you say are the factors that are unique to our system that keep people imprisoned for an unjustly long time and reinforce the system that we're in? Obviously, it has a lot to do with not really dealing with race in, in our country and the way that we perceive people based upon the color of their skin. We know that what that has looked like at different times in our history. And in many ways, we've sort of brought that forward uh, to, to present day. And the way that we've done that is we've created a criminal legal system that sort of others people, right? And so many other countries will sort of recognize that people who are involved in the criminal legal system are still very much a part of, of society. They maintain their rights to vote in many countries. They maintain um, their rights to receive public resources, um, particularly upon release. The, the society that we built, the criminal legal system that we built, is one that says these people are different from the, the, you know, the rest of us somehow. And we know that that's just not true. Most of us, one in every two people know someone like very close to them or has a yeah. close family member who has been to jail, right? So we know that the narrative that we've been pushing is just not reality. People who enter the criminal legal system are 
and should be uh, considered like anyone else, right? They are our brothers, our sisters, our family members, people that we want to ensure are able to take care of themselves upon release. And so our system just does not recognize that enough, and it creates one where we send people to jails and prisons uh, at an unprecedented rate. I just want to point out, too, that the, the difference between jail and prison, right? So jail is typically going to be in your uh, sort of manned by the, the local level government, um, so in your cities and your counties. And jails are typically a place where people go while their case is pending or if they're sentenced for a misdemeanor charge or any charge where the sentence is going to be less than a year, a year or less. Um, if a person is sentenced on a felony or a charge that has a, a sentence of more than a year, then that person you'll hear is sort of colloquial terms of being sent upstate or being sent to, you know, up the river, I think is another term, yeah. right? Sort of indicative of the fact that they could be sentenced or are sentenced to a longer period of time. Mm. And so just drawing that distinction, because I want to point out that for many of the people, about 60% of the, 60 of the people who are being held in local jails, about 60% of them are, are not convicted of any crime whatsoever, right? And so that's when we get into the conversation about pretrial justice and what that means. And so I just want to point out in, in our country, we have the presumption of innocence. It's one of those firm uh, presumptions that we have that if you enter the criminal legal system, you will be presumed to be not guilty until the state, the, the prosecutors, have met their burden, right? And so I just point that out to note that, that about 60% of the people that we hold in local jails around the country are people who are presumed legally to be not guilty. And so we really, really have to think about what that means when we think about the broader uh, point of the criminal legal system, when we can hold that many people. I think it amounts to about 500,000. It changes. Uh, it's changed a lot in the last year with some of the bail reforms um, in different states, but about 500,000 people um, between 400 and 500,000 people are being held in local level jails. And those people have, uh, many of those people have not been found guilty. And so that just like frames how we're currently doing it. Yeah. Sure. Others have some other points to add to that. Just to piggyback off of what Anson is saying, you know, that whole premise of, you know, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty in theory. Yes. But in reality, no. You know, as a practicing attorney, I see it all the time when an individual is arrested and they come in to court, you know, the, the decks are stacked against them. They're an underdog. Like, they don't have a lot of the opportunities that maybe, and I'm going to just be honest, their white counterparts who may come in with their private attorney would have. And so for the most part, individuals, when they come in and if they're arrested, they are given bail and they are put in jail and they are, you know, they're sitting there for the duration of impending of their case. And unfortunately it makes it hard for them to be able to converse with their attorneys, to be able to fight their cases. And as, as opposed to white counterparts who are able to post that bail or maybe won't get bail at all. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's very unjust and unequal when it does come to black and brown people versus Caucasian people. 
it's that tension that I think is so prevalent in the United States of what Anton and Lenora were both saying about the presumption of innocence is this kind of idea that, you know, kind of fits into the meta narrative that those in power in the United States and those of us like me, white people who enjoy many of those privileges can kind of cling to. But the reality is that the system works exactly the way it's designed to work. Mm -hmm. So people are incarcerated because we've built a system to keep black and brown and poor people incarcerated. So, you know, I always think that's a really important point as well in talking about incarceration and policing is that a lot of times when I hear the conversation happening, particularly with white people leading the conversation, it's almost this idea, this, this sense of it's like an accident that we've gotten to this point where so many people are incarcerated. And that is absolutely not the case. It is, it is designed to work the way it's working. And unless we are able to actively intentionally disrupt that, it's going to continue to operate this way. And so I think that's one of the things that I find so disheartening and frustrating in kind of broader conversations. And of course, most politicians, not all politicians, most politicians is this kind of, wow, somehow we've gotten to this place and I don't know how we're going to change it. And it's so, you know, beyond our, you know, it's outside of my power to change it. That's not, we designed it this way so we can change it. It's just that those in power, we, you know, clearly there's not a will to change it because otherwise we would. Mm. You know, I, I wanted to say thank you. Like, I appreciate all of the points that you brought up. And especially like, Anton, you mentioned like the othering that happens in um, the criminal legal system. So I'm, I'm feeling slightly emotional. Like this is this is a, a personal um, topic for me. Like it is something that is very triggering because Anton, you mentioned like everyone knows someone. Um, my older brother has been incarcerated for um, 24 years. So it definitely is like, you know, it is a personal issue. And the othering that, that occurs, it like, it is a holistic matter. Like it does, it doesn't just touch on like, oh, this is something that is in a legal sphere. Like it impacts all of your life. So it definitely hits holistically. And um, I think like in order to approach a situation, like we do have to think about what are the holistic factors that go into a person being criminalized or a person being institutionalized in a prison? Um, it is just, you know, it is our society and it is holistic. So I wanted to say thank you for bringing those points up. Wow. Well, I want to I want to say thank you for sharing that because it does bring it back to where it should go, right? Where the conversation should be. The conversation, you know, I, I deal a lot in numbers now. Everyone knows that I was a former public defender and I dealt with people and 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 really, really loved my clients and 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 um, respected them and learned from them. And I've sort of switched to a place where I look at data and it's been helpful for me and my career to sort of understand now really, really what what my clients were up against. Um, and I understand that in a different way now. But I think there needs to be some some sort of cross-referencing, right? So the data people need to spend more time with people who are involved with the you know, closest to the issues. And, and those people, the people closest to the issues, uh, my former clients, their family members, um, public defenders, I have a soft spot for public defenders having been one, need to be the ones to, to sit at the head of those tables 
helping to figure out what policy looks like for for our communities. And so it's a people issue. We cannot forget that people are in the middle of this system and they're the ones that we need to be protecting. Um, so that's what that made me think of. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and to put a little bit more context there, right? Like um, we've been talking about um, black and brown people and sort of what that means. Let's just be real, right? Like I was a public defender. I used to go to court every day. Uh, I was a PD for about 10 years. I went to court every day and I stood next to people who looked like me. It, it blows me away. Like, like everybody that I stood next to, say for about maybe 10% of my clients, looked just like me. You know, I was 25 years old when I, I became a public defender, and I'm like standing next to young men who were me. And I didn't understand it at that time. And I maybe thought it was an anomaly, but, you know, year two came by, year three, year four, year five of being a public defender. And I realized that something was broken in our system and it led me to, to try to figure out what we could do to change it. And I'm yeah. still in the midst of like figuring out what that is, but it definitely is more convenings like this, more conversations with other people and more sharing personal accounts of how, the criminal legal system actually harms people. Right. And, and, and as an actual practicing public defender, you know, you guys make a, a, a great point, you know, to the media or to, you know, people, these are numbers, but we see on a day-to-day, -day, these are people, these are their lives. And I'm sure Wendy can attest to the fact that a person getting arrested is not a singular issue. At the end of the day, if that person has kids, it leads to now an ACS investigation coming in, people losing their kids. It can, it can lead to this person now because of the fact that maybe this arrest happened in their home. Now they're looking to be evicted. It triggers not just, you know, the fact that a person gets arrested. It triggers so many collateral situations and things that can happen that can just, that, you know, detrimentally destroy this person's life in a single moment. And a lot of the times, you know, it's not all the time, but there are a good number of times where these arrests in and of itself, that they were illegal. They were not rightfully arrested. And, you know, people that have licenses that work for the Department of Education, when you get arrested and you get fingerprinted at the precinct, that automatically goes to Albany. People lose their jobs. They get suspended only to come back, what, I don't know, a month, two later, and the DA says, oh, okay, we're dropping the case. You know, we don't, we, you know, there's no case, we're going to drop it. But what happened to this person's job? This person who is the breadwinner of their family, this person that, you know, is the one that's taking care of their kids, they don't have a job anymore. They don't, you know, they don't have a house. So, you know, I think people, data is good and we need that because the data shows, you know, where the help is needed and where the resources need to go. But I think at the end of the day, we really, really, really need to realize that these are individual people's lives that not only affect them, but affects their families. I think that that is such a good point, Lenora, about, um, again, the, just the, the system works exactly the way it's supposed to work. And so police, tar police target black and brown poor communities. And then once you're arrested, just showing again how false this idea of the presumption of innocence actually is for, for 
not for, you know, Harvey Weinstein or something, but for the majority of people who are involved in the system, because so many things happen to you that are irreparable, even if you are in the small group of people who actually are able to persevere enough to prove your innocence in a trial, which is so unusual, not because everyone who's arrested is guilty, but because of all the factors stacked against you, even, you know, and this goes, uh, this also contributes to why people are incarcerated. Just like if you're a taxi driver and you get arrested, your license will be suspended. And so now, even if you did nothing wrong, you're, if you're the primary breadwinner of your family, or just if you're poor, even if you're not the primary breadwinner, you need every salary that's coming in. And then the fact that you have a criminal case pending means that you can't work. Uh, I think you're going to want to take a plea so that you can start working again. I mean, it just, everything incentivizes people to take pleas and all, and uh, like the fact that it triggers, you know, for people who don't want a criminal case open, if they're concerned about being picked up by ICE, um, or if you're a non-citizen or if, uh, yeah, anyone with children, you're going to have a problem when you're arrested again, different for if you're white, if you're wealthier, very different, but for the majority of people in the system, you could lose your children fast. You could lose your children while you're waiting for a trial in criminal court, uh, like permanently lose your rights as a parent. You could lose your housing and all of that impacts the family, just like Lourdes was bringing out from her own experience. Like, I so appreciate that, that we're not, and that's the, the numbers are even just about the actual people who are in cages. And that doesn't even reflect the ripple effect, which is kind of putting it mildly. I don't know how, like the destruction of, families and whole communities from the system and again like design it works the way it's designed to work and it's so um devastating i think just how comprehensive that destruction can be mm. when you mentioned that the system is is working the way that it was intended to and when we see this issue as personal as it is, that's a very grim claim. But I think it's important to understand in terms of where do we go from here. I would love to hear a historical context for our criminal legal system. How did we get to this point? So, I mean, I can touch a, I can touch a little bit on like um, Rikers Island and the whole Close the Rikers campaign and whatnot. So, I mean, when you say the word Rikers Island, everybody knows. That, what what that is, you know, it's one of the notorious jail complexes um, in the country that's out of New York City was established in 1932. Um, it actually is considered part of the Bronx, but it is situated on an island. Um, back in around 1990, there was approximately 20,000 individuals that was incarcerated on um, at Rikers Island. And I just want to go back to the point that um, Anton made when he made the distinction between jail and prison. Prison is a jail. It's, an, it's a place where individuals are housed that if you, the, that you are not at, at the point in time convicted of any crime, you're there because you can't, um, you know, pay bail or whatever the case may be. And then there are a number of individuals who are convicted of a crime and they're selling, they're uh, serving a jail sentence, which is less than 364 days. But for the majority of the people that's there, they have not been convicted of any crime. This is goes with the presumption of innocence, right? So here we are there, you know, they're in, um, during the de Blasio administration, he came up with a 10 year plan to close Rikers. 
And, you know, the basis of that was basically Rikers has a very bad infrastructure. Um, the way that it's kind of set up, it's it's old fashioned. You know, um, there's many jails around the nation and a lot of the jails are more updated in the sense like they have jails where like there's like a pod in the middle and you can see individual jail sales. Um, whereas um, this is not situated that way. You know, it's old. It's kind of long corridors. And what that, what that means is that that means more officers are going to be needed and, you know, supposedly secure and protect these, um, these um, inmates. Um, but de Blasio came up with a plan. His administration came up with a plan. Um, and so around 2017 is when it was actually put out that they wanted to close Rikers. Now, it was a question of whether it needed to be reformed or did it need to be closed? And the ultimate outcome was that Rikers should be closed. This one big jail should be closed. And then we should build borough-based jails in each borough. Um, these borough-based jails basically would be near the courthouse, with the exception of the Bronx, where um, there was debate of where that jail would be located. And right now, um, the talks were, the latest talks were basically to have it at an impound lot that was owned by NYPD near the Bruckner Expressway. Um, there's pros and cons to that, right? Um, the pros is okay. It makes it easier access for uh, people's families to come and see them, right? Um, because going to Rikers as a, a defense attorney, it is a tedious project. It can take you up to three hours, if not half a day, just to get to the island, get on a bus, get on another bus, get on another bus, finally get to you know your location, you sit there, and then you wait to see your client. And God forbid, if there is a lockdown, you're screwed for the day, and now you're back on another bus and another bus only to get back. It is just a horrible experience. And now you put individuals who are going to see their loved ones that have to work, that have child care issues. This is not something that's an easy task for them to do. So, you know, yes, on the one hand, you know, if you build these borough-based jails and individuals are arrested, you have the opportunity to be closer to your loved ones so that you can see them. But then there was cons where a lot of people felt that these jails were being put in um, areas where there were home ownership and people felt that it was unsafe and they didn't want those jails around them. And then there's the argument too, which um, you know, I'm sure we'll get to and we'll talk about it, about why, have jail, why close one jail and build more? Like, what's the, what's the point? Like, why are we doing that, right? Um, and so at this point, you know, there was, a, in January, we had some criminal justice reforms, which Anton will talk about, that was built in place to help to reduce the population of Rikers Island. So then we can get to a point where then Rikers Island could be closed and we can then put into place these, you know, other jails. Um, and a lot of this came about because um, the Khalif Browder story, which I'm not sure if many of you are familiar with, but Khalif Browder was a 16-year-old that was arrested back in 20, um, 2010 for allegedly stealing a backpack. He was charged with robbery. Um, because he was on probation at the point in time, bail was set in the amount of $3,000, and he was held in Rikers Island. He was held in jail because his family could not make that $3,000. And, you know, like to some people, it's like, oh, $3,000, that's nothing. 
that's not the case. Like, you know, a lot of people can't get that money up. A lot of people can't get up a thousand dollars, you know, and I see this every day as a working attorney in the Bronx, you know, maybe I sometimes think, oh my God, I probably couldn't get up $3,000 until at least my next paycheck. And that's pulling, you know, that's using the whole thing. So because of this, he wind up spending over two years in jail for a crime that he was adamant that he did not commit, coming back and forth to court. And eventually the case was dismissed. Again, two years he spent in jail, in Rikers Island, in deterring situations, violence, abuse, for something he didn't, he did not do. It's DA two years to decide, oh, they're going to dismiss this case. Unfortunately, what was sad about it is that he got out, but then two years later, he winds up committing suicide because of the effects and the trauma that, that being in jail took on him. And so that was one of the big pushing movement movements to, as to why Rikers needed to be closed down because mm. it's a horrible place. You know, we hear so much about violence and abuse to inmates, abuse from inmates to the guards or to, uh, you know, civilians. It's just a place that is terrible. Um, and so then there was things that were put in place. And Anton, I'm going to switch it over to you to kind of talk about like the bail reforms and the different criminal justice reforms that kind of came about, like to try to help with the reduction of the population in Rikers Island. One thing that has been consistent in our um, country has been taking a broad look at incarceration rates, right? And we saw that there, that incarceration rates continued to boom, particularly in the 90s and um, after the, the war on drugs. I say after, I think we're sort of still in the middle of the war on drugs, right? It just changes different uh, faces depending upon who is charged with crime. So we have the opioid epidemic now, right? We don't call it the war on drugs. Hmm. Um, you'll consistently see people, you know, dealing uh, or sort of grappling with dependency issues, right? That's something that's not going to go away in our society. It's just how we sort of encounter it or the language that we use. Uh, but that being said, we, we saw uh, incarceration rates creep up and we saw building um, around our country, we're building new jails, right? And so that focused a lot of attention on what we're doing wrong. And, and some people might say right, right? Like some people are encouraging this uh, to, to Wendy's point of, of things being intentional, right? So we didn't just, we didn't accidentally get prisons and jails being built um, in, in our society. Um, there were a faction and are a faction of people who want them there and want them here. But to, to deal with mass incarceration and the huge expense um, of mass incarceration to local governments and the federal government, uh, people started to wonder what we can do to get people out of jail, to use jails and prisons much less. And so some of those measures are pretrial related. So bail reform um, and then policing uh, reforms. How do you, community policing is, is what it's been called. How do you ensure that people are not being targeted inappropriately in communities? Um, how do you ensure that people who are charged with crimes are not being held uh, in on bail that they can't afford? And so you start to see a crop of, of pretrial related reforms or measures to reform our criminal legal system. And then you see post-trial measures that, that relate to excessive sentencing and other post-trial measures related to 
probation and parole, some of these other systems that tend to keep people under the guise of the criminal legal system for much longer than they should be, if at all, right? I'm, I'm certainly uh, closer to an abolitionist <laughs> than anything else. Uh, but to the extent that, that we have a criminal legal system, it is not even debatable that people should not be spending the amount of time that they are spending in prisons uh, in our country. And so measures in New York State recently have focused on uh, bail, um, pretrial justice reform. And so one thing that, that we saw uh, back in 2019 was the passing of a bill that made it so that judges could not, for the large part, could not set bail for nonviolent felonies and misdemeanors, right? So the idea being that the lower level offenses were ones that were would escape uh, bail. The, the judges could still set uh, conditions of release. They can still still do sort of non-monetary conditions, but the idea was that that only certain serious cases would qualify uh, to to have bail set. We were able to to see that law through. It came. Um, it was implemented in January of 2020, and what we saw by even the middle of January was that state jail census uh, numbers or or state jail populations had fallen by about 30%, right, from January 2019 to January 2020. So just to put that into context, right, like we were seeing tons of people go home to their families. Uh, they still have a charge, let's be real, right? Like the, the case is still pending. They are released. They, you know, the DA's office, the prosecutors still have every right that they, or the people, as we call it in New York, have every right to see this case through to the end, to prosecute this case. But what we we saw is that people got released. They went home. They were able to take care of their families. Many of them did not lose their apartments, which is you know, your apartments are in jeopardy, your public um, resources are in jeopardy if you are being detained in, in jail. And, and, um, and so there was a campaign of fear-mongering that said, hey, but what about us? What about public safety? How are we going to release these people, right? A lot of the rhetoric was those people, these people. Uh, how are we going to release these people given that they were charged with something, right? And so, again, it goes back to that theme of othering that we talked about. And, you know, the, the simple response is these people are not guilty. These people are families that have families and work jobs just like you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the real response. Um, but it did lead to um, additional amendments to um, the bill uh, law in New York. Uh, those amendments are set to go into effect in July. Um, still sort of measuring exactly what they will be and how they um, will materialize. But it just increased the, the type of cases that would now qualify for bail. Um, so there are a few more uh, charges, even those that might quali not qualify to be a violent charge, um, would still be eligible for bail. Just to be clear, though, that fear-mongering is not rooted in data. Um, I think what we saw was there were claims of a rise in crime um, in about three weeks after the new law went into effect, right? And so 
most uh, data experts would say that when we're looking at something, making a claim as broad as, you know, this policy is impacting our overall safety in New York, you might need a little bit more than three weeks of data that says this one specific arrest category or charge went up, while others, you know, continue to go down. So, you know, the the hard part about data is just who's looking at it and what their interpretation of it is. I think in this case, that that interpretation didn't need to be a lot um, or that detailed, rather, for many people to get a behind a specific narrative. So it's, it's more about the narrative that people yeah, are poised to, yeah, poised to, to accept. And in this case, it feels like that that is exactly what happened. And I mean, I'm going to just say, state my personal opinion here. You know, with any type of change, um, you know, as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. With any type of change, you have to give it time for it to really see, is it working? Is it not working? Three weeks is not enough time to change hundreds of years of laws that have been in effect to see, okay, this is enough time to see, like, you know what, this is not working. And I think a lot of it, you know, comes back to the point of, like, who was out there putting out that this wasn't working, the people behind it, the organizations behind it, Um, you know, I personally, I felt that it wasn't given enough time to see whether or not it was working. It wasn't working. What changes really should have been made. Um, and it's unfortunate. It really, you know, it really is unfortunate that that we got these rollbacks in such a quick time without really giving it the proper time to kind of find out if this was something that was actually effective for the city, well, for the state, basically. Yeah, two thing, two things on that. One totally agree with both of you. And I think also just highlights where the power is, if there is any doubt, where we're talking about years and years of organizing that led up to the changes that went into effect in January. Years of organizing by impacted people, by like blood, sweat, and tears by the people who are most impacted to finally get these changes into effect, right? Within about... Three and a half months, Governor Cuomo, who everyone, oh, many people seem to really like during COVID right now, but is, I am definitely not Team Cuomo. Um, he's like consistently shows his colors. Team Cuomo, police unions, prosecutors are, are just like very easily stepping back the reform. So just comparing those time frames, even just setting aside like the, you know, again, what Lenora and Anton were saying about the importance of time to show the efficacy of um, policy changes, I think is just lays bare kind of the power structure. And I was also going to say something that Anton, you said about data. I am not a data person at all. Like I know nothing about data or I could like, I'm in (laughs) a negative you know, like a spreadsheet to me is like, wow, if I know how to freeze a column or a row, I feel so accomplished. And that's, you know, like spreadsheet 101. I Google anything related to spreadsheets. Anyway, the fact that I think think of a spreadsheet with data probably even shows you what I know about data. So what I was going to say, though, I think especially related to this topic that I know is obvious, but to me, only recently, I kind of kind of clicked. So I think it's helpful to kind of name it is when we talk about crime rates 
I mean, that is already such a biased data pool, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. crime is not actually what is happening. It's who is being arrested. And mm-hmm. so, and how is policing done in the United States? It's done based in racism and class. So, I mean, when we talk about crime rates in different areas, it's about who is being arrested. And we have actually no way of knowing how many crimes are being committed on the Upper East Side because police are just like hanging out, you know, and not really making arrests. I mean, there's like really interesting data around the marijuana arrests that are made in the Upper East Side compared to many other parts of the city. I mean, I just, for me, again, I once it clicked, I was like, oh, that's so obvious. But I just think it's helpful because we kind of use numbers as the basis, like kind of the baseline for a lot of conversations now. But it's not trustworthy, which maybe is not super helpful because then it's like, what's our starting point? But I just think it's helpful to name that. And also even just what a crime is, right? There's just like, what is defined as a crime has also been done really intentionally to be able to target black and brown people. And so all of that just takes away even some of the credibility that's there for the systems that are built supposedly on the data that we have. And just to make like a quick point with respect to crime, you know, again, as a practicing public defender, you know, the one of the biggest arguments was since January 1st, crime was going up. One, if people were committing crimes, I don't think they were going out with the intent that guess what? I'm not committing a crime today because guess what? Bail's not, you know, I'm not gonna get bail today. Right, or right, right. That's not the premise or or the basis. But what I would say is that it's interesting that, you know police or like the media was saying crime was going up yet as a practicing attorney in arraignments, because an individual who gets arrested has to come through arraignments. Arraignments was the lowest that I had seen in the six years of working in, in, in New York. So it just didn't correlate with one another. If crime is going up, arraignments should be crazy packed and like we should be overflowing and whatnot. Yet, and still we, arraignment numbers were down. So then what are you doing? Is NYPD then not arresting these people, but yet saying, oh, crime is up, but we're not arresting people? It just did not coincide with, with what the argument was with respect to now that crime is going up because of these new reforms. It just it just did not line up. Mm. When I originally heard uh, Wendy and Anton on a panel, um, you know, frame the, their vision for criminal justice reform, a lot of it was surrounded around this idea of going back to the origins of our system. How did it actually come to be? And then really reimagining what it could be based off of all that information. And so I'd love to hear a little bit from all of you um, regarding alternatives, prison abolition, and really what is the logic behind that? I would say there's a lot you can say on that topic. And um, I'll try to keep what I say brief, especially because Anton and Lenora are in this conversation. I'm just a little baby and experienced, you know, attorney. And so I want to let the (laughs) U.S. Supreme Court admitted attorney speak. I just want to keep saying that U.S. Supreme Court. Um, They wouldn't even let me in the doors. But anywho. In terms of abolition, I mean, I do think that uh, one of the main driving forces around my support of prison abolition is as a person of faith, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the dehumanization of people who are incarcerated is not able to be aligned with 
one of the foundational truths of Christianity, which is that we're all made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and honor and respect. And the prison system is built to do the opposite of all those things is you become a number. You are commodified and forced to do labor and, you know, just all the different things that happen to people who are incarcerated, let alone their families and their communities. So I think just on a base level, that is such a huge driving force for me. Um, And also the fact that as a Christian, I already have a radical hope on a cosmic level, right? I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that God, Jesus is coming back, that God does amazing things. And so I can have hope even when so many people like to say, well, that's just a, a you know, a dream that's never going to happen. Well, God can do amazing things. Yeah. Just with people for sure. P- prison is not going to be abolished, but I believe that God is focused on people who are oppressed, who are marginalized, the orphans, the widows. Um, and so God cares about people who are incarcerated. And so I believe God could do it. I mean, as a white person thinking about just the tracing of the system back to slavery and to, you know, the genocide of Native people, and even before slaves were brought to um, the Americas, and then um, coming up through as we were kind of forced to end slavery as it was, but then figuring out creative ways to continue to enslave people, um, and how there's this clear line up to this current system we, I, I don't, I don't want any part of that. I want us to radically break those chains and kind of a shifting of power. And I don't think that's going to be possible with prisons continuing to exist. And then one other thing I'll say is just this idea of restorative justice and the centering of everyone who's involved in a crime, not just the person who maybe committed the crime, but the person or people who were impacted by the crime and does prison address that at all. And I would say that it doesn't. And I think I, I think that's also very compelling um, as a Christian and just as a person wanting healing for people and someone just going to a cage, what does that do for the person who was impacted by their crime? And so thinking creatively about how would we actually promote restoring relationships that have been broken when some wrong is committed in a way that is, yeah, centering all those voices that I think are the most important. Absolutely. Those ways to keep slavery going that that uh, Wendy referenced are black codes, right? So um, laws that, that popped up um, right after slavery was abolished that forced people into sort of an indentured servitude type lifestyle, right? So now I owe my former slave owner money for whatever reason, and I have to work that money off um, or that debt off by uh, with hard labor. And then there were vagrancy laws that quite literally had to do with people being decent in society and where they could walk on uh, sidewalks and uh, to whom they could file lawsuits against and things of that nature. And so there were systems that were created to quite literally uh, encroach upon Black people's due process, their ability to to get around in the world, and their liberty, so their their ability to to get around in the world, to do what they wanted to do, to actually be free, to live how they uh, we <laughs> wanted to live, 
my ancestors, my family members uh, wanted to live. For me, it's a lot, uh, my, my views about the criminal legal system now and sort of where we can take it has everything to do with what we are doing with what we have right now, right? It is a broken system by by most accounts. It is should be considered as a broken system, right? But it's a broken system that for whatever reason, as a society, we haven't agreed that it's an appropriate time to fix it, right? And it's been time to fix it, right? Um, and so I think my views about just throwing the whole thing away, right? And I, and I, I just want to pause and just say that some of the work that I do is, is, is done in a very stopgap measure, right? I understand that, that I am working to get changes done and to make changes incrementally, right? But, but internally, I feel like if we are not all sort of surrounded in, or, or indebted to that idea, then we're going to continue to do this for a long time. So I think that the real threat of, of just throwing out the system should be there to incentivize all of us to come up with real solutions for people and for our communities and for our family members, right? Why, how long can we live in, or how long can we suspend reality? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, for our own benefit, right? Um, the benefit of the psyche to just allow things to go on as long as it doesn't involve me. Well, it involves you. It necessarily involves you. It, it, it involves all of us. And so personally, I have a, a, a greater sense of throwing this system away just because we've all neglected our responsibility to change it. Mm-hmm. And if we can't change it and it remains broken, then let's throw it out and start over. Yeah. As for me, I want to just read this one Bible verse. It's from Proverbs 31, 8 to 9. Come in with the Bible, the word of the Lord. (laughs) Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. You know, at the end of the day, when we have family members who may be sick and struggling with like, substance abuse or whatever, we don't just throw them away. We try it to help them. We try to get them into a program or, you know, we try to circle around them and help them to get better. People in our society, these, you know, there are like extended families. So putting people in jail and then like throwing away the key, that's not going to fix the problem. Mm. You know, an, an individual that, you know, for whatever reason, if they do commit a crime, there's underlying reasons there. And when you get to the root of the problem, then you can fix it and you can make it better. Oftentimes, if, if an individual goes to jail, they come out, they don't have a job, you know, they don't have a, a place. The cycle starts again. Recidivism starts again. But I think what we need to do is not be building more jails. What we need to be doing is finding better solutions to help the individual's with the underlying problems, whether that is, you know, finding out if it's substance abuse, if it's mental health abuse, reentry programs, you know, and programs to help them learn trades so then they can get jobs. That's where our resources need to be. And that's what our focus needs to be on, not on building more jails, but on putting our resources into how we can help our community, how we can help our family members be better so that jail is a place they will never have to see or go to. So, Lenore, I have a follow-up question. We've been talking, like, we've we've used the word holistic, and we use, like, you know, the kind of, like, anecdotal terms, and you're talking about putting resources to other um, issues to address to help 
people to not have to enter the system. Like I'm an educator and we talk about the school to prison pipeline, how there's this one broken system that feeds into another broken system. So how do we actually get these systems to unify and talk to one another so that, oh, at schools we're using um, restorative justice measures as opposed to, you know, suspending students or, you know, having them start in the criminal justice system. Like how, how do the systems talk to one another so we can start that reparative measure? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, it, it, it's going to take money and that comes from the government and, and that's advocating for money and resources to be filtered into those specific areas. But then different organizations getting the word out there, you know, um, doing know your rights. And that's something that like I do. Um, I try me and I have a team that we try. We go to different schools. We go to different organizations and we do know your rights. We, you know, we talk about when you come into contact with police or, you know, if an ACS investigation ensues. And we try to educate the community in the different organizations so that education, knowledge is power. When you are, when you know what to do, you'll do better. So I think it's just setting up different resources where like, you know, you can connect with one another, whether that is maybe the individuals that have those, um, those capabilities can go and go into organizations like a school or, you know, go into organizations and talk about what their resources are. So then people can have access to these different organizations. You know, it, it all just stems from us pulling together. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, level by level type thing. It's not something that can be done overnight, but setting up and leveraging, you know, relationships with different organizations and one another so that you can get the word out and people can then be informed. I would say on that too, I just think that's another compelling reason for prison abolition is that it necessarily involves radical change in the way that our society is structured. And the, the, where we put resources. And so, because we treat so many things with prison. And so like some people, like where I went to middle school and high school, if you acted out, uh, you, or if you missed school, you didn't get arrested for truancy. You didn't get sent to juvie. You like got connected with, you know, family resources, therapy, whatever things to respond to figure out what was happening. But the prison system is a hammer to treat so many things that we've decided that certain communities don't get to have resources to actually treat whatever's happening. So like what Lenora was saying in terms of struggling with mental illness or substance use or just the poverty and just like, are we going to give people money and support or are we going to use the hammer of prison? And that's what I think that for prisons to not exist, there would need to be a radical restructuring and resources poured into where we're not right now. And that's also, I think, a compelling reason for abolition. That's good, that's good. So y'all covered a lot and it's a lot of great information. I can imagine there's a lot of people who are listening and they're thinking, okay, I wanna learn more about it. And not only do I wanna learn more about it, I wanna do something. And so what would you say would be a good next step for someone listening and who either wants to learn about the topics that you guys have covered or uh, wants to actually take action and impact the system for the better. Learn, like learn as much as possible. And I say that humbly, um, I am in the process of doing that. Uh, I do that every day. I'm, I'm, you know, blessed to be able to do that for a living as well. But even before that, um, I noticed 
that everyone in court and as a public defender looked like me. And then I had to learn what those numbers were, right? I had to learn that while, you know, black men make up only 13% of the, the United States male population, that they make up 35% of the males who are serving more than a year in, um, in prison in our country. I had to like learn that and sit with that and then try to understand that. And that led to, you know, knowledge that, you know, some of it related to what Wendy brought up, black codes and, and, um, reconstruction. Um, and so for me, what that looks like now is making sure that I know what's happening in our arraignment courtrooms, specifically since I research bail reform and, and uh, pretrial justice policy. I actually want to see how that's happening in, in criminal courts. So I go and sit in courtrooms across the city um, and, you know, to see how judges are, are doing bail, to see what prosecutors are requesting, to try to understand the arguments that defense attorneys are making. And it puts a real face to, to what is happening uh, in criminal courts. And so I'll caution that some of that could feel um, like a performance, right? And I know, I think some people don't want to check out what's going on in court because it does feel a little uncomfortable, right? This is a public forum and people are talking about their lives. And to be quite honest, some of it is, is uncomfortable to sit and to watch and to see. But that is what we have to sit in, right? Like we have to, it is, it, it should be as uncomfortable to know that black and brown men are being arrested at higher rates than anyone else in our society, that they are being held in on bail um, at higher rates than anyone else in our society, that they have worse outcomes for their trials should they take their cases to trial, and that they are sentenced more harshly if they are found guilty, right? We should be uncomfortable about that. We should not turn a blind eye to that. I always just say that, like, yes, it will feel uncomfortable. And obviously, I, I believe in the respect of uh, the courtroom and the respect of the person who is laying out their life before a criminal judge. So be very respectful and, and all those things. But don't let that, that, that uncomfortable feeling that, that happens sometimes stop you from knowing what is happening to people in our communities, to our brothers, to our sisters, to fathers, and to people who work every day to hold our society up. For me, just the, the blanket statement is to get informed. And some of that does require you to see what's actually happening inside of criminal courts in our country. Mm. And so I'm going to say, once you get informed, you need to take action. And there's two things that I'm going to suggest. One, vote. Two, exercise and go to jury duty. The people, we don't just vote for presidents. We don't just vote for mayors and, you know, governors. We vote for judges. We vote for the DAs that are in, you know, our boroughs. And do your research, you know, look these people up and then go out and vote because these people are being put in office based on people voting. If you don't vote 
and then you don't like what they do, it's it's hard to have then a say in anything, but you do have a say when you do your research and you get out there and you cast your vote. The other thing is participate in jury duty. I know a lot of times you get that notice and you're like, oh my goodness, no, you want to throw it away, you want to call, you want to make an excuse. But you know, when individuals are going to trial, black and brown individuals are going to trial, that our juries should look like a cross-section of our community. And if we're in the Bronx, the majority of the people in the Bronx are people of color. And if people are not going to vote and you see a, a jury pool of mostly Caucasians, that's not good. And so making, you know, being on jury duty, you have a lot of power there because you are able to hear the evidence, you're able to hold that DA to their standard of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that this individual is guilty. And you have the right to say guilty or not guilty for an individual, which will change their life and their liberty. So those are two things that's very important. Like Anton said, get in the know, learn, and then exercise and get out there and make some action. Focusing on learning from the stories of people who have been impacted and been incarcerated, I think is a really great starting point. For a lot of people, if you don't if you don't have someone you know who's incarcerated, it might seem kind of challenging to know, like, how do I get to know someone who is incarcerated or who has been? And along those lines, I think several programs that um, I have either personally participated in or have friends who have participated in and um, are great ways to kind of form personal relationships with people who are incarcerated. One is uh, Black and Pink, which is an organization that works with people who are incarcerated. They have a pen pal program. Um, someone who I used to live with participated in that and has continued to kind of write letters back and forth with someone who's incarcerated. And that can be like a small way, but real of providing connection to someone who may not have a lot of other people who are writing to them and hear back from them. And then uh, there's also several different programs around helping people who are coming up for parole interviews to prepare them for parole. Um, and that's something that doesn't have a lot of resources for lawyers to do. And so that's volunteering for that can be a great way to get to know someone who's incarcerated and also to provide support in, in a really important process of trying to get people out of prison. That's something I did in law school. Um, and someone who I worked with is going to be on the podcast later and um, just the honor of getting to know him and providing what I could as just simply by not being incarcerated, being someone who was outside was extremely rewarding. And um, I was so glad to be able to do that. And that's, you don't have to be a law student or be any sort of legal professional to volunteer in that. And then there is a group, uh, what Anton was talking about with um, observing arraignments because they are public, but most people, of course, like, I mean, first of all, a lot of people work during the day, but arraignments don't just happen nine to five. I think going and observing or groups organizing to do that has been a really huge push to have people be more informed about district attorney races and voting like what Lenora was talking about. There's a group called Court Watch NYC, which I think does have a lot of organizers in there who are people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, you can volunteer with them to take shifts uh, observing arraignments. And they and you could follow them on Twitter, even if you're not able to volunteer with them. They're really interesting to follow because they share just what people are hearing in arraignments in New York City every day. So you can compare what you're reading in the media, which tends to very much skew towards police and prosecutors and punishment versus what people are actually hearing happening. Like, oh, actually they asked for, you know, $50,000 bail on someone who stole a piece of soap from Walgreens. Um, 
you know, I just think the contrast can be really helpful in gathering those stories too. That's really good. That's really good. Thank you so much. You have really resourced us with a lot of information to take in. This is such an important discussion. And so we're hoping that we could continue this discussion. Nora, Wendy, Anton, thank you so much for joining us on City Image. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. City Image.